Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Stephen King cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Once I reviewed each of his works in the chronological order of publication, but Ka is a wheel, it all goes round again, and here I am, once more on a new phase of the journey to examine each of the endings of the works of Stephen King to determine whether or not he deserves his reputation for having an inability to successfully land his endings. The focus of the podcast will be to examine the climax, falling action, and resolution to the endings of each of his novels and break it down by character, themes, conflict, and plot to determine whether or not it meets the criteria of being an objectively good ending. I will also weigh in on whether or not I happen to personally like the ending. And today, at long last, long last, I'm going to be talking about The Colorado Kid. So guys... Um, I, many of you throughout the years have written to me and requested the Colorado kid. Um, I had a bet with all of you that if I reached 500 likes on iTunes, I would review the Colorado kid. Um, and here we are, we got 500 likes. I'll be talking about the Colorado kid today. I am excited. I'm glad you all pushed me to do the Colorado kid. I... Here's my history with The Colorado Kid. I did not read it when it first came out. It took me a long time. I actually read um, Joyland first. And yeah, then I just I wound up reading it once I, I got the 500 likes. Um, but as part of the, you know, the, the hard crime, uh, you know, books that, that King uh, did, I, I wasn't interested. And when I first, when it was first published, it was coming off the heels of the dark tower and for longtime listeners you'll know that when the ending to the dark tower first hit when it was first published i did not like it so you know obviously things changed my uh my taste changed my appreciation grew i had a more of an insight and understanding and you know i came to realize that just because i didn't get the thing that i wanted doesn't mean that it was inherently bad um but anyway to just put into context at that time i was kind of burned out i felt burned by stephen king and i was kind of burned out um about reading stephen king stuff i had been going full on um stephen king obsessive you know um by that point for well over a decade and i having felt burned, I was just kind of okay with stepping back. And so I stepped back and I let that time period kind of sour itself for me. I was very grateful for the purposes of this podcast because it made me go back and look at things through a, a very objective lens. And I wound up really reappreciating a lot of the stuff that came out that time that I might not have, that I, that I initially rejected. Um, so novels like uh, Dumaki. Listeners, you know how much I love me some Duma Key. At the time, I did not like Duma Key. I was also hesitant on um, uh, Under the Dome, 112263. You know, my reappraisal of those, um, it, it, these are some of King's strongest works, and they were coming in um, a decade that I had uh, initially rejected. And Colorado Kid was in there as well, and I didn't even give it a chance. So I will talk a lot about Colorado Kid. Um, can't wait to talk about the Colorado kid, but first I'm going to, um, 
read some listener emails. So up first, we have Dawn, who writes, I'm already your biggest fan, pun intended. I see what you're doing there. I just finished Paper Ghosts, which was my very first podcast ever. I'm still a book reader rather than a podcaster, I guess. I went to the search tool and searched for, what else? Stephen King. I thought Stephen King, I thought the Stephen King cast would be appropriate. I've been a rabid reader, rabid reader since reading The Stand, my first book. I was around 15, 16-ish. I couldn't stop reading. I ingested this book and proceeded to find and consume every book I can find, often terrified, horrified, shocked, and thoroughly entertained. I'm very excited to hear your take on these works. I remember writing a paper, Stephen King is literature in college, making the argument that our grandchildren would be learning about King in the years to come based on his impact. I got a C, but if I swapped names with Poe, it would have been an A. I have read and reread all of his books several times over. I am excited to hear another's take on his works. Looking forward to looking back, starting episode one now. Now, Dawn. Dawn, thank you so much. Dawn, you've got a lot of podcasts to listen to, so I'll shut up and I'll let you I'll let you enjoy. Thank you so much. Longtime listener, um, number one fan of the show, Bryant writes, answering the call. Um, and so I had many episodes ago, um, or not many episodes ago, but many months ago, <laughs> um, I asked people to write in to tell me what they thought of the Lisey's story adaptation um, on Apple Plus, on Apple TV, and looks like Bryant is going to give his review. So I thought Lisey's story was okay. The novel, which I need to reread with the context of the miniseries in mind, is handily one of my least favorite King has ever written, so the miniseries was not a slam dunk for me to begin with. I ended up liking it, though, and I think it's probably made the novel go up in my esteem mildly. Even so, I lost a lot of interest by the end. Even though there's nothing in them that I can point to as being particularly bad, the final two episodes were just so-so for me. So while I loved most of what came before that, I ended up feeling a bit indifferent toward the whole thing. It's a damn sight better than The Stand, though, so it's got that going for it. Great cast, lovely visuals, a memorable score, and some good screenwriting decisions from King who wisely got rid of most of the private life of a marriage vocabulary wackiness. It just never quite managed to ascend to that next level for me. I call it a B or B plus. That's an improvement on the grade I'd give the novel, though, so it's a win in that sense if no other. Bryant, thank you so much, and thank you for all the support throughout the years. Kevin writes, hey, constant reader. First of all, my sincere condolences on the passing of your furry co-host. I listened to the most recent episode of the podcast yesterday, and it should come with a warning. I, sorry, everyone, this is in reference to the episode that I recorded um, in which I discussed the passing of my longtime furry uh, co-host. And it should come with a warning. I was driving and was so moved by your tribute to your pug that I had to pull over. Your obvious love and affection uh, for her uh, came through loud and clear, and how your daughter has reacted is beautiful. FYI, when my daughter's cat passed early last year, we were able to send a photo of the cat to httpcuddleclones.com and they create a stuffed animal with the cat's image on it and she has slept with Fender every night since. It's a quality product with a good printing of the image, great shape, solid weight, and good stitching. She loves it so much and though she loves the other two cats we have gotten since, she always says a special good night to and sleeps with Fender. Now I'm getting choked up. I don't work for the company. I'm not getting any, anything out of it. Just thought I'd pass it along. So... For anyone that does have a, a child and you do lose um, a pet, it looks like cuddleclones.com might be the, the, the place for you all to go. Um, 
So, Kevin, thank you for, for giving us that. Um, okay, you continue. So, now, as for Billy Summers, your blunt review made me chuckle. Pretty clear that this was not your favorite King reading experience. I understand your point about Billy not needing to be a writer for the sake of the story. And frankly, I did think that the shining Easter egg was shoehorned in and not needed at all. That said, when I think about Billy Summers, those are not the things I remember. I remember the relationships Billy formed while he was undercover. This reminded me a lot of Jake's experience in 11-22-63, and I wish King had spent more time there. I think Billy's relationship with Alice, I thought that was extremely well done. Billy's war experiences were resonant in terms of the larger story, but I would have preferred that King detail them in flashback rather than them rather than having Billy write about them. It was unnecessary, but it didn't take me out of the novel that it wait the way it seemed to have done for you. I don't think that Billy Summers will go down as one of King's best or most beloved works, but I also don't think it was the misfire you think it was. One question for you, I know that the new Gwendy book is coming soon, but there don't seem to be any more King books on the horizon past that. Have you heard of anything indicating King might have anything new coming out this year? He did say fairly recently that he has no plans to retire, but usually there's some indication of something always in the publication pipeline, and I can't find any indication of anything. Hope there's more uh, water in King's well. I hope you have a great 2022 filled with long days and pleasant nights. Kevin. Kevin, so... Um, Yes, uh, Fairy Tale will be coming out in the fall. Can't wait. Can't wait to see. So I will say this, everyone. Um, I think that we should temper our expectations for King's upcoming uh, return to the fantasy genre. There's a lot of, I see a lot of chatter online about a lot of hopes and theorizing that it's a undercover Dark Tower novel. I just, let's just take things at face value. I think that we as a society, especially with social media, have gotten a little bit too far down the rabbit hole um, that when we are presented with something without any indication that it's anything other than what it's stating to be, we start creating um, possibilities that aren't based on anything other than our, our wishes and our hopes. And I just don't want to turn those wishes and hopes against the novel that we are about to get. I say this without any, any understanding of what it's going to be. I just, when I read the description for it and I saw the cover to it, my mind did not say, oh, this is a subterfuge Dark Tower story. I did not think it's going to return us to Gilead or Midworld or even the territories. This to me seems to be a story about a fantasy world that Stephen King is writing. And I'm going to take it for what it is, not for what it's not. But I'm also not going to get my hopes up. If there are Easter eggs or any connections, you better believe I'll be excited for it. Okay? But I'm not going into it with any thoughts that that's what it's going to be. I just ask all of you to temper your expectations. Okay? To put things in the parlance of Marvel television shows... Mephisto is not lurking behind every corner. The big bad guy is not going to be Mephisto. Sometimes the power broker is just Sharon Carter. It's just, sometimes that's what it is. Does it seem obvious? Yes, because that's what was presented to us. <laughs> not everything needs to be a super layered mystery. All right. Sometimes 
a fantasy story is just a fantasy story, and I think that that's what we're getting. Then we have Constant Listener who writes, Dear Constant Reader, hello. I've been listening to your podcast since 2019, but this is the first time I've written in. I enjoy your reviews of King's work, and they have been a fun compliment to the experience of finishing the novels of his that I've read and adaptations that I've watched. I'm writing today to encourage you to do a review of the color. Look at that. Of the Colorado Kid. You got it. This is probably King's least talked about novel. And I think the lack of attention to this one, not just on the Stephen King cast, but across the board is unjustified. And I agree with you. I first read The Colorado Kid fairly early on in my exposure to Stephen King. I had a rather unorthodox introduction to his writing at the age of 27 with The Girl Who Loved Tom Gordon, and he quickly became one of my go-to authors. I have other friends who read a lot of King and were regularly uh, and would regularly discuss his work, The Good, The Bad, The Ugly. When I first read The Colorado Kid, I found it uninteresting. I was craving something more along the lines of what one might think of as iconic King which I know is ironic given the first book of his was The Girl Who Loved Tom Gordon, a great novel, but not generally at the top of iconic King novels. I held on to this assessment of The Colorado Kid for a few years until a friend of mine and I were recently having a good, a good in, an in-good fun debate about whether this book was awesome or terrible. I argued that this book was my least favorite of the King books I've read so far. My friend, who has read everything he has ever written, argued back that this book was completely underrated and jokingly challenged me to reread it, so I did. Upon rereading it just this week, I have 100% changed my opinion of this book. It has quickly skyrocketed from the bottom of my King hierarchy of novels to the spot in my top 10. As my friend and I were discussing this book, we got onto the topic of why this one seems to be so universally ignored by critics and other King fans. My friend pointed out that this was especially odd given the throngs of King fans that argue that he can do literature and should be appreciated for those talents because it's one of his most literary pieces. When I asked why they thought the Colorado Kid was still ignored given the literary style of the novel and many cries from King's fans that his literary writing is undervalued since he is seen as quote-unquote just a horror writer, they entertained a theory that I had never considered before but can't stop thinking about now and I believe has some merit. Stephanie McCann, one of the main characters in The Colorado Kid, is one of the very few of King's women characters who is just a full person. There's nothing weird or different or hypersexual or supernatural about her. She was a young adult woman who was successfully pursuing her career and has a very honest mentor-slash-mentee relationship with the two older men characters in the novel. It's not a weird or creepy dynamic. It's just genuine and endearing. As a slight aside, as someone who has had a mentor-mentee relationship like the one depicted here, it really stuck and rang true to me. She's not a plucky little kid with superpowers, Firestarter, or a telekinetic high school outcast, Carrie, or a woman who has been abused and has every reason to be pissed off at the world, Dolores Claiborne, Gerald's Game, or an obsessive murderer, Misery. She's not simply a two-dimensional love interest of anyone in the novel, too many women characters from the multiverse to name, or a character that has some traumatic experience who has to live through Lisey's story, It, or a woman character who is a full person with a few odd traits, Mercedes Trilogy, Outsider. She's not a hypersexualized or brutalized or 
are killed. Arguably, two of the more fleshed-out women characters of King works that I've read, Susanna Dean and Sadie from 112263, while good, are still not quite in the same league here since his writing of Susanna is so hit or miss with the racist characterization of Detta, and Sadie is still not the central focus of 112263. To paraphrase my friend, if you ask most readers if they thought 112263 was Sadie's story or Jake's, 910 would say Jake's. In short, there's no qualifier to Stephanie's character like there is for so many other women in King's Multiverse, even the better or more celebrated depictions of women. She just is a brilliant and full person. These are just a few examples we discussed, and to be clear, I enjoy many of the novels noted above, but my friend further pointed out that had Stephanie McCann been Stephen McCann, or John, or Bob, or whatever... This book probably would have gotten a lot more attention than it has so far. Think Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption, The Body, The Breathing Method, 112263, The Green Mile, or any more of his more literary works that center on men as the main characters, and when women are involved, they're generally dying demonic side characters or underdeveloped. One might argue that folks don't like this one because it isn't horror, to which my friend and I say, weak. So many of his other works are revered when they're not horror, and it has an excellent and poignant mystery element to it. One might argue that the story within a story device doesn't work. Next, see the wind through the keyhole, the breathing method, just to name two. One might argue that this was a limited release at first and was initially hard to find. Okay, but when have we ever known King fans to let a limited release get in the way of them finding the book somewhere? I think many people who got out of their way to find and spend obscene amounts of money on out-of-print copies of Rage for reasons that are beyond me. Plus, the Colorado, the Colorado Kid um, has since been republished and is stocked on the shelves of most bookstores or libraries you go into, and certainly internet booksellers and has been since 2019. One might argue that the hard case novels are not as good as others. Untrue! if one reads most coverage of Joyland or Later or the books themselves. One might argue it's really a novella, so coverage will naturally be lesser than this one. Faulty argument given the coverage of Elevation when it came out and how much attention so many of his other novellas have received. I could go on recounting our discussion about the polite sexism that too many of us may have internalized about Stephanie McCann and the Colorado Kid, but I will conclude this by saying... As a kin reader, king reader who was not a man, Stephanie struck me as one of the realest depictions of a woman he has ever done. And after rereading it, I wish this story were discussed more than it is. I understand if some people read it and just don't enjoy it. There are many of King's biggest hits that I read and thought, meh. But it's almost as if this novel just doesn't exist to people, given the near universal lack of attention that is received, com received compared to his other works. So I encourage you, to review this one. After returning to the Colorado Kid, I think some of his best work, I think it's some of his best work, and I think it's time for it to be given the attention that it deserves. A few other reasons why I think you should review it beyond what I have outlined above. First, given King's reputation for being terrible at endings, a topic I know that you've taken up on the podcast, I think the Colorado Kid is one of his best endings in terms of how well it fits in the overall narrative and characters of the story. Also, I personally liked it. A lot of people will surely hate it because they wanted something this book was never going to offer. But if you take the story for what it is, not a story as some of our central characters would say, then it is perfectly fitting. Second, I would be surprised if you read the story and don't wonder, and don't wonder, Thinny? That's all I will say um, on that until you get to it. 
I hope this has convinced you to give the Colorado Kid a review. If so, I look forward to listening to it. Sincerely, a constant listener. Constant listener, you are in luck because today I review Colorado Kid. But I will say, it won't be nearly as poignant or well-written as your review was. That was awesome. So before I get into the review itself... um, Please, if you have any thoughts at any point uh, about Stephen King, write into stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. Um, and also, if you have any time, please head on over to iTunes and leave a review because that will help me out greatly. It will help uh, just differentiate me from the uh, many other awesome Stephen King podcasts that are out there. So iTunes review, stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. Write into me and we'll chat. All right, so on to the review of uh, Colorado Kid. I'm going to read the Wikipedia so that I have a basis upon which I can build my analysis. Wikipedia. Opening N. Meteor Race as the news staff of the Weekly Insider Islander pays for lunch at a restaurant, editor Dave Bowie and founder Vince Teague test young intern Stephanie McCann's powers of deduction regarding their unorthodox tipping procedure. She impresses them by discerning that the restaurant management pools all the tips and splits them equally among the staff, while Dave and Vince want to leave an especially large tip earmarked for their waitress who has fallen on hard times. They discuss some local unsolved crimes and oddities, which have gained circulation in mainland newspapers as far away as Boston during the traditional Halloween season in such tales. The friendly assessment becomes more intense as the elderly island natives and Stephanie returned to the office, and she asks if the veteran reporters have ever come across a real unexplained mystery. Dave and Vince take turns recounting a strange incident and investigation. On April 24th, 1980, sound like Robert Stack, on April 24th, 1980, two teenagers stumbled across a man's body early in the morning, slumped against a trash can and carrying no identification. The body bore no clear indicators of foul play. Cause of death was determined to be asphyxiation as a large chunk of steak was extracted from the victim's throat. Every potential clue leads to small revelations, but bigger mysteries. Though the investigation is lightly bungled, everything seems inexplicable from how the fish dinner stomach contents could line up with his ferry boat crossing to the single Russian coin in his pocket and the pack of cigarettes missing one cigarette when the autopsy indicated he was not a smoker. More than a year later, thanks to sharp-eyed rookie spotting an out-of-state cigarette tax stamp among the man's personal effects, the John Doe becomes known as the Colorado Kid. Eventually, the man's identity is traced. James Cogan of Nederland, Colorado. He was a commercial artist living a normal middle-class life with his wife, last seen at a seemingly average workday before inexplicably disappearing. There was no hint of money troubles, adultery, drug addiction, or mental illness. The factor is normally associated with someone leaving home so suddenly. Everyone involved with the case is at a loss as to how or why the man could have traveled over 2,000 miles in the five hours between when he was last sighted in Colorado and first sighted in Maine, when there was at a time no direct airline flight to account for his arrival. In the weekly Islander offices, the three friends, old and new, ferret out all the answers they can from the facts of the 25-year-old investigation and speculate on what might have happened and mediate on the nature of true mysteries. 
Despite the lack of clear evidence, Dave and Vince hypothesized that the Colorado kid was murdered. He, he probably flew to Maine on a chartered jet under uncertain but pressing emergency and carried the Colorado cigarettes as a clue to his origins should he come to harm. Though Dave and Vince shared other unsolved crimes and oddities with outsiders, they have kept the Colorado kid a secret due to their belief that a big town newspaper or glossy travel magazine would tell the story inaccurately by wanting to provide resolution to the account that stubbornly defied a clean culmination. They informed Stephanie that while they were the last people alive who know the whole thing, having heard the tale of the Colorado kid, now there's you, Steffi. A warm proclamation seems to signal the young woman's final approval by the old guard of the Islander. Yeah, so let me talk about let me talk about uh, the Colorado kid a little bit. So on page fifty six, it stood out to me. Um, one, I think it's Vince, um, says to to Stephanie. Well, then I'm going to tell you a secret. Almost every newspaper man and woman uh, who's been at it a while knows. In real life, the number of actual stories, those with beginnings, middles, and ends, are slim and none. But if you give your readers just one unknown thing, two at the very outside, and then kick in what Dave Bowie there calls a must-a-been, your reader will tell himself a story. Amazing, ain't it? All right. So sprinkled throughout this book, um, you know, everything that our uh, listener had uh, written in um, and, and so eloquently uh, defined this is a, a great companion piece to On Writing, um, and, and, and this is a story about stories by one of our most prolific storytellers. So I'm really upset at myself that I slept on this for as long as I did, because in the parlance of the, the youth, this book slaps. This book's a banger. Uh, it, it really is good, guys. I am very grateful that um, I was pushed into reading this. Uh, I am frustrated that I did not read it when it came out. But then again, I would not be the reader that I was um, until much later. So I think that if I had read this, I would have uh, been opposed to uh, what King was trying to present to me. I would have judged it for what I wanted it to be, not for what I was given. Um, and I wouldn't have the life uh, experience and the wisdom to be able to appreciate the story that King was telling us um, with the Colorado kid. So let me just talk a little bit about it before getting into to my thoughts. Um, I mean, the discovery of the body and the little observations that we get are great because the nature of the, because of the nature of the story, you feel as though you're right there pouring over every little detail with them. When the, um, doctor is examining the shape of the hand you can't help but make a a tube and a pincher formation the way that king is describing it um i just want to let you all know that i didn't take a lot of notes on this one because the story is so somehow simultaneously light yet engrossing you just get carried away in the rhythm not just the mystery of it all but the tale itself the way it's told by dave and vince so much that when you turn the page and see the words the end it's shocking. I can't believe that it just comes when it does. Throughout the years, like I said, I, I had heard mixed reviews of this book. Um, and after finishing it, I, I understand why. I completely understand why this book is as divisive as it is. For some, the, the fact that the reader is 
flat out robbed of a resolution is unforgivable. For others, the, the ending to this book, it's a natural conclusion to what King clearly stated at the outset, that this story was about a mystery. It's about the mystery. It's not about the answer to the mystery. It's a celebration of the concept of the mystery. Who is right in this case? Does the person who rejects the lack of resolution have a right to negatively judge this story? Does the fan of the ending look past some glaring flaw? After all, in the tale itself, King writes about why people are drawn so much to stories, no matter how garish or gruesome they may be. And it's because when people are given a beginning, middle, and end, they are provided closure. And with it, some measure of control at least, the comfort that comes from control over the randomness and the uncertainties in this world. So who is right? The reader who wants to bury their head in the sand and reject the statement that the world is full of mysteries? Or the reader who believes a rack of resolution is an artistic expression worthy of conversation? I can see why many of my listeners have wanted me to review this story, especially since I've taken on the task of examining the endings of King's works. After all, this is a commentary on the nature of endings, isn't it? By purposefully refusing to resolve the mystery, King rejects the notion of the importance of endings, a belief that I have fully adopted over the years. So I've brought it up before, but let's bring it again since we're talking about endings. Let's look at some of the discourse around endings in our pop culture over the last 10 years or so, shall we? Let's talk about Lost. Let's talk about the ending that just blew open the doors about how we talk about endings. Everyone just decried at the end of uh, the, the finale of Lost. It was the worst ending ever. Can someone tell me why? Like, spoiler alert, like, full-on spoiler alert for Lost. And, and tell me why a story that had focused on the characters that give us the resolution to these characters with the, the thematic resolution that they were all characters who in some way were morally lost they were alone. They found each other. And it's through their communal relationship with each other that they were able to find um, salvation. That to me is just, I think it's beautiful. I think it's poignant. I think it's very true to what the show was. Do we ever find out what the island is? No. No. Did I ever at any point feel as though we were going to find out what the island was? No. And, of course, so much of the, the, the mythology, it's funny to use that word, around Lost, so much of the mythology around the ending of Lost is about a misunderstanding of what it is. And then everyone just says, oh, yeah, well, they were dead the entire time. And I, I just, I don't know how we're still having this conversation. Why is this, I mean, we talk about fake news all the time, but, I mean, come on. Is this something that is still even being discussed you know, but it gets shared that they were dead the whole time. And it's just factually untrue. I mean, like, it's literally stated in the show. It, it is stated in the show why that is wrong. That what happened, happened. Um, so it's just, I, I think that the misunderstanding of, of what the show was and a clear misunderstanding of what the ending was um, just kind of created a narrative that it was a quote-unquote bad ending. Um, and I thoroughly, I reject that. I reject it. Sopranos. I so admire David Chase for, for what he did with uh, The Sopranos um, and giving us the ambiguity, which he has since walked back. Um, I think recently he flat out has 
acknowledge that spoiler alert for the Sopranos ending that Tony is shot. But I mean, you watch the ending to that. Oh my God. I mean, that is for something as mundane as Tony going out to, to eat. I mean, that is as tense an ending as you're ever going to get in the conclusion of, of a show. And, and that's, you know, for a show about a mob boss, I mean, what do you want? What do you want? You got, like, it happened. Like, people, you watched the death of Tony Soprano. You watched it happen. Like, what do you want? What is it that you really want? Like, it, it's, he's not going to, I don't know. Like, you, you, he just can't ascend to a throne and then live in 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 infamy for forever where nothing bad is ever going to happen to him like it, it, this is a character who has ordered you know the, the 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 execution of many people in his life this is he is in a business in which this is regular and due to actions both you know his fault and beyond his control he had to go and he became one of the people he had you know called off to or called upon to 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 be executed it it's well within the 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 structures of that show and then twin peaks i mean what king does in the colorado kid it's exactly what lynch believes in lynch always believed that laura's death was the goose that laid the golden eggs if you solve the mystery you kill the goose that's exactly what happened and this is what king is celebrating in the Colorado Kid. It's the exact thing that drove Lynch and Frost when they created Twin Peaks in the first place. The Dark Tower itself. King just flat out tells us that it's not about the ending. It's not about the ending. It's about the journey along the way. If you focus on the conclusion, you will be punished for it. How is that for a theme? If we focus and judge a piece of art by the ending, you miss sight on what it is. Which brings me to the Game of Thrones finale. I've thought a lot about this, and I've talked about this a lot in this podcast, but the more I think about it, the more I get frustrated because the way the fandom turned against Game of Thrones really bothers me. It really bothers me that... It went from being so beloved, so beloved, and in the span of four weeks, because people were pretty into episodes one and two of the, the final season. And sure, I mean, there were some complaints in the, in the season beforehand, but in the span of a few weeks, it went from this thing that was just universally beloved to hated. And to me, if you just add up the amount of time that you spent watching the show and talking about the show and just loving about the show and dedicating yourself to the show. Okay, so maybe four hours, five hours didn't live up to your expectations. We're going to just completely shit on the show from here on out. Is that fair to everyone that worked on the show? Is that fair to every writer that worked on the show? Is that fair to Benioff and Weiss who lifted it off of the ground and who whether you like it or not did give you an ending which is more than we're, we can say about george rr R. martin sorry george but i mean it, it doesn't look like we're getting an ending here i i just think that our belief in the endings of shows it, it's just or or just endings period it's just grown to be too much that if like someone hears that the the ending the final 15 minutes of an hour of a 
five season show that has 22 episodes per season if they if the final 15 minutes or the final half an hour or the final five minutes isn't good that everything leading up to that you, you just don't bother because the ending isn't good i mean what does that say about us I mean, we are putting way, way, way too much. If we are, if we judge our final, like our entire lives by the final moments that we spend on this earth, like we, we would laugh at ourselves because it's not about the ending. It's about the life that we live. And when it comes to storytelling, we live that life in the moment with every minute that we spend watching a show in the moments of anticipation that we spend counting down till it's nine o'clock on HBO on a Sunday night, or when the, you know, as I record this, there's a lot of anticipation for the next season of stranger things. Um, tomorrow night, it's going to be episode three of the final season of better call Saul. Like there's all this anticipation. I'm telling you if fandom turns against Saul, because it doesn't land, doesn't quote unquote land the ending. It, I just think that we as a society probably should be washed from the from the earth because we really don't appreciate what we have. And we're so quick, I don't want to say so quick to judge. I think as long as we make informed decisions about our, our judgment, I think that that's fine. But if we are just going to just knee-jerk throw everything out that has come before the conclusion of something, if that conclusion did not live up to our very specific... Um, and subjective wants and desires, I just don't think that that's right. You know, the endings of everything that I just listed, Lost Sopranos, Twin Peaks, Dark Tower, Game of Thrones, they're criticized one way or another for, for a number of reasons. And what they all have in common, despite the differences in those endings, is that many of their fans have taken the ending and applied the criticism of it to the entirety of the work itself. Again, placing just this unbalanced amount of weight and importance on the ending itself. Conversely, listen, like endings from shows and books such as Harry Potter and Breaking Bad and Avengers Endgame are all celebrated and pointed to as examples of endings done right. Now, why are these celebrated when the aforementioned examples are not? Well, I would say that for one, built into each of the examples that I provided is a feeling of triumph within the text. Our characters are tested and come through the other side triumphant. In each of these examples, the author of the text, whether it's J.K. Rowling, Vince Gilligan, or Kevin Feige, builds in reflective moments for the audiences to look back on the journey that had come before it. The audience is invited into the journey to become a part of the story, and in each of these cases, the author allows for celebratory moments to be shared, whether it's Mrs. Weasley screaming, Not my daughter, you bitch, while opening up the trunk or the portal scene in Endgame undeniable that each of these moments are goosebump inducing and rightfully so you'd be a robot or a monster to claim otherwise and don't get me wrong do not get me wrong watching endgame on opening night is single-handedly the greatest movie theater going experience i'm ever gonna have and i regularly watch audience reactions to the portal scenes and i smile every time i do so the the um the the portals song by alan silvestri is on my running playlist and so when i'm going for a run in the woods and that song comes on oof, i just start sprinting it's great i mean i love all three of the endings that i just talked about the problem here is that while these endings are objectively good endings for the stories they conclude what makes them work 
can't so easily be copied and pasted onto other stories. Just because we like the triumphant and tragic ending of Breaking Bad does not mean it proves that the ambiguity of The Sopranos is wrong. Or that if you took the ending of Breaking Bad and transplanted it onto the ending of Sopranos, that it would quote-unquote fix the ending of The Sopranos. Both endings are perfect endings for the stories that came before them. Take the ending of Six Feet Under. The reason why so many people talk about it as much is because it's not just a well-done montage, but because the montage is thematically in line with what the show was all about. If Breaking Bad concluded with Jesse speeding off in place of Claire while the viewers flooded with a montage showing what happened to each of the characters from that point forward through the moment of their death, what would the point be? It works in Six Feet Under because Six Feet Under is about death and how it defines our lives. The relationship between Claire driving away from her family, thereby driving into her life while everyone's deaths flash before the viewers, hammers it home that there's no escaping it. Whereas Breaking Bad's finale is almost mathematical. Gilligan and his writers operated on problem-solving their way out of storytelling conundrums. They went into the finale making sure that every piece was perfectly in place, and it fits with a show about the precision of chemistry. So my point is, as you've understood, as I've been making my way through King's endings, is that you have to judge the ending within the context of the entirety of the story leading up to it. So, let's talk about Colorado Kid's ending. Normally, I would ask a series of questions based on character, conflict, theme, and plot to determine whether or not it meets the criteria of being an objectively good ending. But the character, plot, conflict are all wrapped up entirely into the theme that we can just cut right to the chase. King explicitly presents, through the conversation between the characters, the importance of a good mystery. And it's important. It's about a mystery. And it's a good mystery. And mysteries are important. They make us ask questions. They make us jump. To, they make us dive into the unknown. They make us live life, right? And like I talked about, um, David Lynch and Mark Frost and Laura Palmer, it's the conclusion to the mystery that kills the story. So all in all, you know, I, the end of the day, it's 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 a it's a novel or a novella that should be read. Um, it should be discussed, and it is the the mascot, I would say, of this most recent, uh, you know, phase of the Stephen King cast, in which I talk about endings and the importance of endings and our weird relationship as a society to endings, um, and the way that people reject the entirety of stories if the ending is not doesn't live up to their expectations. So, um, I strongly recommend it. So here are some Stephen Kingisms. Island mystery. Usually his island mysteries are all set at Little Tall Island, uh, first in Dolores Claiborne and later in Storm of the Century. Ka-tet telepathy. Though it's not explicitly stated, I don't think he was doing this on purpose. It's fun thinking about Dave, Vince, and Steffi as a little ka-tet. At one point, Vince uh, picks up an Edgar Allan Poe reference that she had been making in her mind which is more in line with what we see from Roland and his crew. Number three, impending death. The narrator drops a line informing the reader that a beloved character will die. He loves doing that. Um, so all in all, I'm so glad I was finally pushed to read and experience and then just discuss The Colorado Kid. Um, if you have only listened to this 
podcast and haven't actually read The Colorado Kid, please do yourself a favor. Go and read it. Um, It's good. It's characters that you're going to like. It's about what we're talking about now. Hopefully, it will make you look at endings and mysteries a little bit differently. Okay? So, this means that 33 of 37 endings I have liked. And based on the criteria that we have typically discussed, 32 out of 37 endings are good. So, that's the Colorado Kid, everyone. Next week, I will be back with um, Cell. Let's talk about Cell and zombies and our addiction to uh, technology. All right? So, um, may you have long days and pleasant nights, and I will see you here next week where M-O-O-N spells Stephen Kingcast.